Yesterday, more, yesterday, my wife and I, my family and I, just doing normal stuff, you know. And like right now, for us, normal, whatever normal is, just feels really good. You know, we're coming out of a weird season, scary season. So, so us just hanging out at Cracker Barrel and Target, that just feels good, you know. And so this past weekend, we ended up uh, looking and Megan had to buy some things for the girls. And as you're looking in all of the stores, you begin to notice that the employees there kind of have this weird look in their eye. They have this look in their eye of like, I may lose my life over 45 cents of Chinese plastic. You know? That, that with Black Friday coming and with, with the shopping season kind of getting kicked off and with Thanksgiving and Christmas and just all of the, the chaos and the hysteria that kind of comes in with all of that. You can just kind of sense in the stores, in the air, that the employees, man, they were just kind of kind of a little fearful, maybe a little trepidatious. Everywhere that you look, you see stacks of clothes or stacks of things that you can buy in all of the aisles. I went into one store yesterday. I don't think it would be humanly possible to get one more rack to hang clothing on in that store. You go into Sam's, the, the center aisles are just stacked up with things in anticipation for people to buy. And I think this is probably a microcosm of the way our society and the way our culture and in fact many of us approach this season that we approach this season and we expect and anticipate and participate in chaos and stress and buying and frustration and wondering if we have enough gifts or the right gift or if we spend enough or if we spend too much and we pile on debt and then we worry about the debt over the next 12 months. And so we got all of these weird emotions. We've got to face family that maybe we're not comfortable with. We've got we've to make sure things are perfect for the children since the children are going to remember these days. And we want to do this tradition so that they'll do this with their kids. And we've got, we got all of these millions of things that are kind of jumbled around in our head, kind of blowing around like ping pong balls. And so what I want us to do this morning is just to stop for a second. As we prepare for Thanksgiving this Thursday, as we prepare to enter, enter into uh, the season of Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that's just wrapped up in that, I want us just to stop for a second as the children of God and be contemplative, be reflective. Pause for a moment to make sure that throughout this season we don't get swept away with the current of chaos that will be all around us, but instead that we might remember the cornerstone upon which all of this is to be so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. When we come to Luke chapter 10, we're entering into the final phase of Jesus' ministry. At the end of Luke 10, we see two different comparisons that Jesus makes. The first comparison he makes is the comparison between the good Samaritan and those folks that came down the road that perhaps weren't so good. The second comparison that we see in Luke chapter 10 is between two sisters, and it's these two sisters that we're going to look at this morning. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But, the Martha, but Martha was distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone, left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to our text this morning, we are introduced to two sisters. And as is often the case, these two sisters apparently could not be more different. Now that's one of those things that's always fascinated me. I was a, a youth pastor for a long time, and I would often have like this awesome kid in my group that just did everything and just killed it and rocked it out, and you can't wait for the sibling to come, al- come along. And then the sibling that come, comes along is one of those kids that puts aura gel in your toothpaste. Right? Or, or, or it could be the inverse. You'd have, you'd have the Origel kid, you're one, and you're dreading the second kid to come in. And the second kid comes in, and he's just that kid that makes you feel good about everything, like you're actually good at what you do. I even look at my family and know how different I am with, than my sisters. And I can even see it in my own daughters. My, my youngest is only 10 months old, and yet Megan and I can already identify things about her personality that are different than Gracie Kate. We don't think she's going to be quieter, uh, unfortunately, but we can see some things that are different. And so it's a fascinating dynamic when you have multiple children that grow up with the same parents in the same home, with the same rules and the same expectations and the same amount of money, and yet they grow up to be entirely different people. We see this right here with Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, from all appearances of what we know of them, looking from the outside to the inside, appear to be entirely different people. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to do a comparison. I want us to t- talk about Mary and then talk about Martha. And then I, want us, I think we're going to see a comparison that, that Jesus makes through Luke here that helps teach us and prepare us for the season that's ahead. So let's look at Mary first off. Our text tells us that Mary is at the feet of Jesus. It says that uh, that she's at the Lord's feet and and she's listening to his teaching, verse 39. The word at his feet there uh, can actually mean up against his feet. So the picture that we have of Mary is that Mary has drawn herself as closely to Jesus as she can possibly do. She has gotten as near to him where she is actually basically sitting like on top of his feet, just hanging on every word that he has to say. Now, this is quite remarkable. And the reason that it's remarkable is because Jesus has sat down. He has assumed what in his day was a position of teaching. It was to exude a position of authority. And having sat down, Mary comes and she sits down right in front of him, stage center, at his feet, which was a recognized position of a disciple and the discipler. Now, in Jesus' day... The way that a disciple was chosen was very similar to the way that we, ch- that we are chosen for college. That you would have a group of students that would apply to a particular Jewish rabbi. The more prominent or the more popular a rabbi, the more applicants that they would have. And then that rabbi would choose the cream of the crop as his disciples. Those that he would personally invest himself in. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
Jesus, we never ever see him doing this. And we can assume that Jesus would have had a number of applicants. If Jesus was nothing else in his day, Jesus was popular. Jesus knew how to grit a crowd. He was controversial. He was compelling. He taught with an authority from God that just drew in multitudes of crowds. Now we, knew, we know Jesus was disliked, but sometimes I think we take for granted and forget how liked Jesus was, how interested people were in him, how interested people were to see him heal thousands of people as they were brought to him. So we can assume that Jesus, had he initiated the typical rabbi process, would have had a number of applicants. But then think about the men and the people that we see in the Bible that are Jesus' disciples. Fishermen. Tax collectors. Here we see front and center at his feet, Mary, a woman. Did you know in public a Jewish man did not even speak to a Jewish woman? It was considered to be culturally taboo and inappropriate. A man would not even speak to his wife in public, especially not a stranger to a woman, and even more so, not a woman to a rabbi. But here we have Jesus, and he is not turning Mary away. He is not telling Mary to go and get in the kitchen. He is not telling Mary to go have babies and leave him alone. No, we have Jesus looking down and teaching, speaking into her life, talking about the truths of God's words. Jesus is doing here what Jesus does time and again throughout the Gospels. Jesus is trouncing all all social constructs and all cultural taboos. That Jesus did not worry about the obstacles and the boundaries that men had built into their societies that were aside from the Bible. That Jesus all the time throughout the scriptures is trampling over those things and hanging out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with. Talking to people he shouldn't be talking with. uh, Engaging people in his ministry that most people thought he should just avoid. And we see this here with Mary. Now, there's a reason that I tell you that. Because I think what we see in Mary's life is amazing. Mary is in a position of prominence. She is in a position of influence. She is in a position that that is a privileged position. She is sitting there, hanging on every word, being discipled by the Lord Jesus himself. A place that she had no right to be. You realize that's you and I standing before the Lord. Our standing before Christ Jesus is that we have no right to be at his feet. We have no right to enjoy his word. We have no right to enjoy relationship with him in any way. But instead, what has Christ Jesus done? He has trampled over all of the barriers of sin. He has trampled over all of the barriers of culture. He has trampled over all of those things that would prevent us from getting to him. And he has come to us and he has called us his child. His disciple. You see... Being a disciple of Jesus is a privilege, not a job. I think sometimes when we talk about discipleship, and we talk about that a lot here, right? And we're going to keep talking about that a lot here. Because it's at the center of 
our call and the Great Commission, and it's at the center of our vision. It's at the center of our hearts. It's what we are passionate about. But I think the, 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 the danger can come that as we have all of this talk about discipleship, and we have Sunday school and D groups, and we got to memorize scripture, read scripture, read books, write journal entries, come back, talk about all of that, that all of that can feel so inconvenient and so laborious that we kind of just become robots that just do what we've got to do, get through the day. And even if we're honest about it, sometimes resentment can grow. Resentment can grow. Isn't that crazy? I think about my group of guys. There's a group of, of men in my life that I'm trying to pour myself into them and to disciple them, and, and, and it's, it's often reciprocated as they pour back into my life. But we meet at 5 a.m. at IHOP. And y'all, sometimes when that alarm goes off at 4 a.m., there might be a little root of resentment in my heart. Uh, just, just, I mean, just a small one, guys, but, but man, sometimes when my alarm goes off, there's a root of resentment there. And sometimes when my, my week has kind of gone haywire and I've still got work to do, I've got I've to plow through Romans a bit. I've got some memorization to do. I've got some, some journaling to do. Man, sometimes I'm just like, this is overwhelming. And I think if we're not careful, what can happen in our lives is we can forget that discipleship is not a job. Discipleship is a privilege in which we have no right to be there. But by the Lord's grace, he has called us into this. He has called us as his children. He has called us to delight in his word, to love his word, to cherish his word. He has called us to, to be in community with one another and to have one another's backs and to defend one another and to fight for one another and to bear one another's burdens. That what this thing is that we've been called into is a glorious and great privilege that the church must not take for granted. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged that, that every time you gather to grow in Christ, every time you open up your Bible, every time you memorize a verse, every time you meet with a group of men and women to do the same, that you are in effect taking the posture of Mary at the feet of Jesus in a privileged position that Christ himself died and was raised from the dead for you to enjoy. And so we, we see Mary here, and what is Mary doing? Mary is listening to the word of God. In other words, Mary is, is growing in her understanding of who Christ is. Mary is, is growing in her understanding of what this relationship is going to look like going forward. And what I want you to understand is that this is how relational depth is always achieved. Relational depth is always the result of relational interest and relational investment. This is how it happens in your marriage, right? It, it, when you have this marriage and you have these two sinners that have come together, and man, you've got problems and she's got problems, we all got problems, and then my mama's got problems and her mama's got problems, and we add those problems into the mix, and then we have to figure out the forsaken holiday calendar on where we're going to be and when we're going to be there, who, when we're going to eat black-eyed peas with this people and when we're going to go eat turkey with these people and how all that's going to fit together and all the traditions, we've got to do this tradition and that tradition and this tradition, then we've got to have our own tradition, we've got to fit all this stuff fitting together, right? When, with all of the pressures that we have on marriage, 
and all of the struggles of what it means to be married in a fallen world, if we want to have any hope of going deep with one another, if we want to have any hope of this thing lasting 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, a lifetime, there better be some interest in one another. There better be enough interest in one another where you're willing to, to set some things aside so that you can just get to know each other. So that you can just enjoy one another's presence. So that you can know what, what makes her tick and what he's worried about and the things that are, are kind of going on in their lives. And there better be some investment in that relationship. There better be some sacrificial investment in which you just kind of put down everything in the world and just focus on one another for a while and focus on how you can grow together and how you can, how you can grow as friends in a fallen world. Our relationship with Christ Jesus is no different. In fact, this is what discipleship is about. Discipleship is about cultivating the ground in which you're, you can have a flourishing walk with Christ Jesus. It's about cultivating the ground in which you can go as deep so your roots can sink as deeply into Christ Jesus as is humanly possible. But you have to take interest in one another. You have to, you have to put some things down and invest yourself. You know, moms and dads, last week I talked to our teenagers and our college students. How they couldn't just, how they can't just know the word, they've got to love the word. But here's the question that I have for you this week. Have they ever seen you love the word? Do they see you treasuring the word in your heart? Do they see you carving out time to delight in the word, as Psalm says? We cannot hope for them to have a walk with Christ that we ourselves do not have. Do you love the word? Do you delight in the word? Are you sitting at the feet of Jesus day in, day out, expressing interest in Christ, wanting to discover more in Christ, wanting to be nearer in Christ? That's what we see in Mary's life. And understand that Mary is not being commended here for being lazy. I've heard a lot of people use this passage to just justify blatant laziness. That what this means is, is I shouldn't help my wife decorate the house. I should go and, and sit in the chair and, and read my Bible for five minutes and then watch football, right? I, I, I should, this means that I shouldn't serve in my church. I should just put down everything so that I can be like Mary and not like Martha. No, Mary, that is completely missing the picture. Mary is not being commended for being slothful and lazy. Mary is being commended here for just being still. Not slothfulness, stillness. See, Mary is not getting out of work here. Instead, I think what we see in Mary's life is Mary preparing for the work that was ahead. Spending time at the feet of Jesus, growing in the law of the Lord, growing in her relationship with Christ, so that now her serving, her working, her going flows out of her passion for Christ, flows out of her love for the Word. I want you to think about your life. As we move into Christmas, as we move into Thanksgiving, as feasts have to be prepared, as gifts need to be bought, as 
uh, family get-togethers begin to take over. Can you just be still in the midst of that? See, I, I think sometimes this season, the season in which we say Jesus is the center, Jesus is the bedrock, Jesus is this and Jesus is that. Those of us who, who take offense when people take Christ out of Christmas and say holidays and all, I think the, the tendency can be for all of us, even well-intentioned as we are, to take Christ out of our own Christmases by refusing to spend any time with him. And perhaps, perhaps, the Christmas season is the most difficult season of the year for you to get along with Jesus. And for you to call your family to get along with Jesus. And for you to model a passion for the word. And for you to easiest to, to put down the path of discipleship that you've already begun. But brothers and sisters, what I'm calling on us to do as Christians, as men and women of God, is I am calling on us in the midst of the chaos to just be still. Just be still. Not 24 hours a day, not seven days a week, but there has to be times of our, in our weeks. There has to be times over the course of this season in which we can just be still at the feet of Jesus and seek his face. So that when all of our lost family comes around, when all of our children think back and reflect back in memory to this time, they will reflect back, they will realize, they will see, they will witness a heart that is on fire for the gospel. Now let's think about the other sister here. We have Martha. Right out of the gate, we're told some things about Martha that are, in fact, very admirable, very, very honorable. When we see Martha, we, it tells us immediately that she welcomed Jesus into her house. She welcomed Jesus into her house. She didn't just invite him in. It wasn't one of those, uh, you know, yeah, sure, come on over kind of things, right? That we do for people. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you out. Yeah, I'll cook you dinner, but I really don't want to. You know, like, like, what do you need, but please don't tell me what you actually need kind of things. That's not what we see at all in Martha's heart. Instead, what we see in Martha's heart is we see a heart that is genuinely hospitable. We see a heart that, that genuinely wants to welcome Jesus into her heart. It's Romans 12 tells us that one of the marks of a true Christian is that they are hospitable people. And we see this exemplified in Martha's life. We see her cooking. We see her preparing the house. We see her doing all of these things. And not only that, but we see Martha is a hard worker, right? Mar Martha is obviously a southern belle. Right? Some of y'all are married to a southern belle. I'm married to a southern belle. My mom was a southern belle. And you know that when the crowd's coming over, when the guests of honor are coming to the southern belle's house, it's about to get real. If the, if the, if the party's on Saturday, Sunday, Saturday's just going to get real at your house. You're going to be washing baseboards and cleaning underneath the couches that nobody else is ever going to see. And you're going to be dealing with... What, am I like going up and down here like this? Okay. I thought, I, I thought for a second I might have vertigo. I wasn't sure. I was getting dizzy or something. But you're dealing, you're dealing with this Southern Belle deal, and, and you, you know, like you just got all of that. So you got, you got the, the meal, you got the gifts, you've got, you've got the family tension, you've got all of that. And then, added into all of that, you've got all of the cleaning, all of the work that you've got to do, right? Yeah, all the husbands like that one. They're all smiling. Martha was obviously a Southern Belle. She wanted there to be ham and turkey. Can't just have one, having ham and turkey. 
Yeah, pecan pie and apple pie, baby. Jesus is in the house. We're going black-eyed peas. We're going green beans. We're going collard greens. Jesus is in the house, man. And we're going to do this thing to the nines. And so she's working frantically, stressing herself out, terrified. And what does it tell us about Martha? The next thing that we learned about Martha is, but Martha was distracted. But Martha was distracted. The word distracted here literally means being pulled into two different directions. It's your, your cooking, and you've got to make the biscuits, and you've got to cook the turkey, and you've got the, the macaroni going on. So you're over here with the biscuits, you're checking the turkey. Meanwhile, the macaroni's boiling over, and you just feel pulled into a million different directions. And you can imagine, this is exactly how Martha felt. And all of this is going down, and all of this is happening in her kitchen. And meanwhile, baby sister who lives in her house, who eats her food, that's going to eat at this feast, is at the feet of Jesus singing Kumbaya. And you can imagine, Martha was not super happy about this. Martha was frustrated and tense and aggravated. But think about who it is that she's distracted from. Martha welcomed Jesus in as the guest of honor into her house and then completely neglected him thereafter. She's cooking the feast for Jesus. She's doing the work for Jesus. She's opened up her house for Jesus. And the only problem with everything that she's doing is that she has forgotten Jesus. Does this not sound a lot like us at Christmas? As a matter of fact, does this not sound a lot like us every single week? Yes, children. Yes. Jesus is what's most important to us. Meanwhile, we're not going to have time for church. Wednesday night, probably not Sunday morning. We just got a lot of stuff going on. Yes, my family is m what's most important to me in this world. So what I have to do is I have to make as much money as I can and work as many hours as I can work so that they can have braces and college and, and be able to go on vacations. Meanwhile, they're never going to get me. Martha is the American microcosm. She is what every single one of us have been taught to aspire to all of our lives. To be busy, to be, pro to be um, effective, to be efficient, to work. And in the midst of all of that, she forgets the guest of honor. The guest of honor is in the house, but the guest of honor is being utterly and totally neglected. Think about uh, us. How often does that be said of us? How often is that true of us? And so then Martha does what is completely unthinkable. And I think if, you, if we would have went to Martha ahead of the day, ahead of the feast, and we would have told Martha how these things were going to play out, and we would have said, Martha, you're going to welcome Jesus into your home, you're going to work to cook Jesus a great feast, and then that night is going to culminate in you rebuking Jesus himself. I think Martha would say, no, that's not happening. That's not going to happen in my house. Not at a party this girl throws, right? I'm being Martha. I'm not actually a girl. 
But that's what she does, isn't it? She's doing all of this work for Jesus, right? Bringing him into her house for Jesus, cooking for Jesus. And then she has the audacity to look to Jesus as Jesus. Do you not care? Do you not care that I'm doing all of this for you while my sister sits down at your feet? Are you indifferent, Jesus? Do you not see what all I'm doing for you, Jesus? Do you not love me, Jesus? Do you love Mary more than me, Jesus? have to buy our kids gifts we have to go and start traditions with our kids we have to do all of these things with our kids and then what ends up happening so often is we end up angry and frustrated and taking it out on our kids you see for Martha her busyness and Paired with, with Mary's stillness, had grown into bitterness and resentment and then poured out as anger on the very guest of honor that she had welcomed into her house. And I think we do this in our families, but even beyond that, we do this with our Lord. Jesus, how could you? You don't give me enough to give to my family? To give to my kids what I want to give them? That guy has it and that guy has it. Do you not love them more than me? And in the midst of our, our, our exhaustion, in the midst of our chaos, all of this kind of builds up so that we just want to pour it all out. And so Jesus, being rebuked, having been rebuked by Martha, responds. And Jesus himself is going to rebuke Martha here. And he's going he's gonna to do it in kind of two ways. The first, thing, the first thing we see Jesus is Jesus responds by calming Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. He doesn't just say it one time, he says it twice, right? And it's easy for us just to, to run right through that. But, but in fact, in Jesus' culture, to say that, and the way that Jesus said it was to, to endear her, to, to communicate to her compassion, to communicate to her love, to say, Martha, Martha, listen to me. Martha, child that I love. Martha, one that, I, that, I, that I, I, I'm going to die for. Martha, Martha, listen to me. And right out of the gate, we have Jesus disarming Martha. Martha's rebuking Jesus. Jesus is responding with grace. Jesus is responding with kindness. Jesus is responding with mercy. Having calmed Martha... Then what do we see Jesus do? Jesus corrects Martha, and he corrects Martha by doing the comparison. Remember, Martha's the one that initiated the comparison. And, and I think Luke is, is pointing us to this comparison when he, he tells us about all these things. And he, says, but, he tells us all about Mary, and he says, but then Martha was distracted, right? All, yeah, all but then. So, so you're seeing this, this comparison done even here in the text. And, I, and I'm, I believe that Jesus is probably only using this comparison to correct Martha because Martha herself had initiated said comparison. What did Martha said? Martha had, had, had implied to Jesus that her way was better than Mary's way. That her actions were more honorable than Mary's actions or inaction. 
That the way that Martha was relating to Jesus was better than the way that Mary responded to Jesus. She had said her work was greater than Mary's stillness. That her cooking was better than Mary's attentiveness. That her, her work ethic was greater than Mary's intimacy. And so we have Jesus in this moment looking back at Martha. Saying, Martha, do you not understand you know what I understand? I don't care about the food right now. Martha, I don't care about how clean your baseboards are. Martha, it doesn't bother me that the macaroni is boiling over on the stove. Martha, what I want is you. I want you, Martha. Mary has chosen the good portion. You, you're, you're worried about turkey and ham, and here sits the bread of life. And that's what Mary wants. The word good there can be translated and is typically translated in your New Testament in the superlative as the best. Your translation of the Bible may actually use the word best there. I think that's what's in view here. The best portion. Out of all of the good stuff that you're doing, Martha... Out of the, the good desire that you have to cook and the good desire that you have to work and the good desire that you have to welcome me in your home, Mary has yet chosen the best. She has chosen to be here and to be intimate with me and to be near me. I think for many of us in the church, many of us who are Christians, the tension that we're going to have to resolve in our own hearts is good versus best. Good versus best. It is not bad to want to do all of and, and, and in no way do I want to make you feel guilty for wanting to give gifts to your children if you are giving those gifts in image of the Heavenly Father. In no way do I want to make you feel guilty for, for welcoming all of your family and, and cooking for them. All of those things are good. But there are a million good things for us to do every single day of our lives and we must choose those which are best. Those which are best. And I think it's easy for a family in this day, and a family even within the church, to hear about what all the other parents are doing for their children, and feel like, well, i got to do that if I'm going to be a good parent. And I've got to do that if I'm going to be a good parent. And I better do that if I'm going to be a good wife. And that if I'm going to be a good husband. And that if, if all the, the neighborhood's going to think that I'm really in the Christmas spirit. Like I've, got to, I've got to do all of these things. I've got to do all of these good things. And I'm going to have to pile that onto the responsibilities that are already there. And you get so wrapped up in the current and the whirlwind of those good things that you end up forgetting that which is best. Jesus is never even honored as the guest of honor in your home. Your family ends up feeling your wrath and your stress more than your presence and your love. In your life, in your family, this Christmas, this Thanksgiving, would you just resolve that before God, you are going to do what is best, not what is good. You will kill your soul trying to do everything that is good. It will wear you out. You will come to dread Thanksgiving and dread Christmas, trying to do everything that is good. In fact, apply that to every part of your life. Your kids can't do everything good. Your family can't be a part of everything good. You can't do everything that is good to do. You must do that which is best. 
So can I just call on you? Can I just challenge you? This year, this year, start new family traditions. Start a new family tradition in your family that begins with Christ. Anything best in this world starts with Jesus. So, so go Black Friday shopping with your daughter. Enjoy that time with her. But what if, what if you shop for a whole different family? Dads, take your son on a Thanksgiving morning hunt that you're going to do every year and spend the time driving back talking about those things that God has given you that you're thankful for. Put, start a new family tradition in your family that centers on Jesus. And in doing that, put down three. Put down three that you're stressed out about. Put down three that, are, that you just do because you always do it. Put down three that distracts you from the season. Man, take the elf off the shelf. You know what I'm saying? All the daddies said amen. And instead, teach your family what the best portion is. Teach your family that which is transcendent and eternal and good. Teach them what a privilege it is to be a, a follower and a disciple of Christ Jesus. So I agree with what one preacher said. In our lives, we must be Mary first and Martha second. That both of those come together to be who we are to be in Christ Jesus. That we must be still before the Lord, draw near to the Lord, be intimate with the Lord. And having done that, out of an overflow of our passion for the Lord, go out and do work in our community, in our church, and in our families. It is worship, then work. This Thanksgiving, this Christmas, let's model that. Let's model that. Let's show our children, let's show our grandchildren what it means to love God and love the Word of God with all of your heart. And then let's show them what it means to serve your family with the joy found only in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, your house should be the happiest place those people go all year long. And that can only happen not by faking it, not by contriving it, by drawing near to the feet of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to draw near to you.